Romans chapter 3 and in verse 1, uh, we continue our study in the book of Romans. And the third chapter basically deals with the justification of the sinner and how that we find justification through Jesus Christ. We've studied in the first two chapters the proof that the Jew and Gentile both have come short of the glory of God. And in verse 23 of chapter 3, the scripture tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now we find out that the whole world stands condemned in need of salvation. And so we're going to find out in this third chapter how that God provides that salvation for us. Uh, first verse, he continues in this chapter dealing with the Jewish people and what advantage they had in being in covenant with God. In the first verse it says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So first of all, Paul says that there was an advantage in being a Jew, a part of the, the nation of Israel, because being a part of the nation of Israel uh, gave them uh, privileges and advantages. One of those advantages and privileges that the, the Israelite people had was that to them was committed the oracles of God. We have the Old Testament uh, scripture that was imparted to them and given to the prophets and every prophet uh, that wrote in the Old Testament were of Jewish descent. So the word of God came through and to the Jewish nation so that they would impart it to the rest of the world. So they had that tremendous advantage of being the, the, the nation that uh, actually had the oracles of God himself committed to them. And then the scripture tells us, in verse 3, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So he continues now and he says, okay, they received the oracles of God. They had the word of God committed to them, and it was indeed the word of God. It was the truth. And having the word of God in their possession, they did not obey the word of God that they had. So Paul begins to deal with this issue even though they had the advantage of having the word of God the problem was in their disobedience to the word of God and so verse 3 he says for what if some did not believe shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect and then he says he answers the question he says God forbid the word of God even when it is not believed is still true when the word of God is preached if I stand back and I say, I don't believe that, uh, and I, or I disobey the Word of God, and I know that it's the Word of God, it doesn't change the Word of God from being true or not. I can say, I'm not going to do that, or I can say, I don't believe that. But the Word of God is still the truth, whether I believe it or not. So, there is a saying that uh, goes around, and, and that is that... Uh, that we, the word of God here that we have, uh, we believe it to be the word of God, and therefore uh, that basically settles it, that this is the word of God, I believe it, and that settles it. But this is the word of God, whether I believe it or not, it's the word of God, and that, that settles it uh, altogether. So 
the scripture here is showing us here that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, were a people who had an advantage because they were given the commands of God. They were unlike the other nations of the world that did not have the command of God. They did not have the law of God uh, to go to. Uh, they basically had the creation of God to declare to them that there was a God and that he was a God of power and there was one God. And so they uh, could come to the knowledge of God, the knowledge that God existed, and were it without excuse by looking at this creation because the creation declares that there's a God. But the Jew had an advantage because they had the very word of God given to them and the law of God showing his righteous demands and commands. The word that they had was true, but they did not obey it. They did not follow it. They rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in whom the word of God prophesied and declared to them. They rejected the Messiah when he come, when he came. So their disobedience was the problem, and it wasn't the word of God. So much like today, the, the problem is not with God's word. The problem if, is with the disobedience to the word of God and we can see an example of that in Matthew chapter 13 where the seed is sown in the field there are four types of soil that that seed falls upon and the problem is not with the seed not with the word of God that is sown in the field but the field itself the four different souls that it falls upon represent four different hearts or four different people that hear the word of God and the results that come uh, from those different responses to the word of God by the individual people. And it shows us that the problem is not with the word that goes forth, but it shows us that the problem is with the soil that it falls upon or the hearts of the people that hear the word of God. So we have an example in the parable that Jesus spoke there when uh, he was teaching his apostles about the word of God being planted or being sown into the world and the different types of people that it would come to and their response. And only one out of those four soils actually was called good soil that responded to the word of God, heard it, responded to it, and then produced the fruit of, of an ongoing faith, an ongoing Christian faith. So we come to this verse of Scripture and we see a similar teaching here where the Jews had the Word of God given to them, but they did not believe it. They, they, were, they were not good soil. And so the, the question is, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Of course not, the Bible says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So God is true to his word, despite human sin. And then in verse 5, he says, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. You know, he's, he's telling us here that God is perfect. He is not unrighteous. God is perfect. 
Again, the problem is with, with the individual and not with God. And then in verse 6, he again answers the question, God forbid, for, when, for then how shall God judge the world? So we see that God will judge this world, that he is a perfect God, that he is righteous. We, we see that his word is true despite human sin and despite human unbelief. So the, the human sin and the unbelief in the human race does not teach us or show us that God is improper in his teaching or in his judgment. His word is forever settled in the heaven, and it is true. His judgments are righteous. He's true to his word. He is perfect. The problem is with we as individuals, and the problem is with the Jewish nation and their disobedience to the word that came to them. And so in verse 7 he says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, what yet am I also judged as a sinner? So basically what he's saying here is this, is that God's word declares that the Jewish people uh, would be un in unbelief. They would not believe the word of God. Eventually Jesus rejected them. Uh, because of their unbelief. And so now we come here and some would have the philosophy, okay, since the word of God has declared these things would happen, then does, does not the fact that they fulfilled that prophecy, does not that exalt uh, the word of God? Well, the word of God is true. It's forever settled in the heavens. It is the truth of God. But no sin uh, is actually exalting the word of God. But despite sin, God can bring good out of the situation. And that's what God does. He can bring good out of the situation. He can turn it around for the good. For example, the unbelief of the nation of Israel would turn around and, and be used by God to bring about something good, and that would be that the Gentile nations of the world would have the opportunity to be brought into the kingdom. They would hear the gospel, and they would be saved. So God has used this, this uh, blindness of Israel to bring about something good. This, the Gentiles would come to the truth and come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we see an example in the Word of God in the Old Testament where Joseph was treated unfairly, mistreated by his brothers. And we find God taking that situation, making something good out of that situation. Despite the sin, God did not condone the sin, but he took that and he used it for, he turned it around for the good, and Joseph got exalted, placed on the throne because of the rejection of his brothers, and then God brought about the salvation of the Jewish nation. So God can take something that is bad and turn it around for the good. Now we come on down through here, and we see basically in verse 8, and not rather as we be slanderously reported, See, this is what they were saying that Paul was teaching. And as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, 
whose damnation is just. So this was a false distortion of justification by the fact that they were saying that Paul was teaching justification by faith and saying that we can go ahead and do evil, that good may come. But he's not teaching that. He knows that despite the sin, God can bring good out of the situation, uh, not justifying sin. So he, he straightens out this distortion of justification by faith or putting our trust in God. Basically, the Jewish nation was no better than the Gentiles. Verse 9, he says, What then are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that all, all, they are all under sin or under the control of the sin nature. So he's proven the Jews, even though they had the advantage of a covenant relationship with God and, and the Word of God, it was their unbelief that was the problem and their disobedience to the Word of God. God was still true. His Word was still true. Despite human sin, He is true to His Word. He is perfect. He will judge. The truth is of God. God can take the evil things and turn them around for the good. Uh, but it is not a license. Justification by faith is not a license to do that which is wrong. Even with God's grace allowing something good to come from it. So Paul was not teaching this distorted type of justification by faith. We have a similar teaching in, in uh, the church world today. Basically, it is once saved, always saved, regardless of habitual, unrepented sin. It doesn't matter how you live. You can live a lifestyle of sin, and, and, and uh, you go to God and ask for forgiveness, and you repent, and you fall on the grace of God, and His favor comes back to you, and so the more that you sin, the more the favor of God is demonstrated in your life. So, you know, sin and uh, God's grace will, will be demonstrated. But that's a false doctrine. Once saved, always saved is not biblical. We must repent of habitual. Uh, we must repent of sin. And so it, in this teaching, once saved, always saved, they basically suppose that it demonstrates God's mercy, which is a false teaching. And then again, we have other distortions of justification by faith. One of them is situation ethics. And that basically means that morality is not absolute, but it changes depending on the situation. But God's Word teaches us that there are absolute commands that come from Him. And they are not changing based on the situation of life. God, is, God does not change. He is unchanging. His word is true. And his word doesn't change with, with the situations in, in, in life. And when he says something is wrong one day, and he doesn't come back and change it the next day and say that it's not wrong so far as his word goes. So we see here that some people teach, well, uh, it depends on the situation as to how the, the morality is supposed to be looked at in, in life. So there is no, praise God, we have to go by the Word of God. The Word of God is true. 
And in another teaching the word that we have today in Christianity is the teaching of easy believism that salvation can come by mental faith without repentance and obedience to the word of God. All that you have to do is accept Jesus as your personal savior and you're in the kingdom of God. So this mental acceptance of Jesus Christ uh, is what some people say is faith. So this is a distortion of justification by faith. Faith in God is not based on situations and morality uh, does not change. It's a faith, justification by faith is not easy to believe, isn't it? Accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. And when we get in the fourth chapter, we're going to see what kind of faith is saving faith. We're going to see Abraham. He is called the father of the faithful. We're going to see what type of faith that he had that would bring about salvation. So justification by faith is not easy believism where all you do is accept Jesus Christ without repentance and without obeying the plan of salvation. Uh, justification by faith, again, is not once saved, always saved, regardless of how you live. Because if you are living in habitual, unrepented sin, then you do not have saving faith. So you don't have the type, the kind of faith that will justify you. So there are many, many teachings that can distort justification by faith. Let's continue. And in, in, in verse 10 uh, through 18, we see that Paul uses the Word of God to show us that the world is basically proven to be in need of God. So he says, we have proved, verse 9, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under, the, under sin, under the control of sin. And he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Jew or the Gentile, <clears throat> the Gentile with, with his conscience, the law of conscience, hasn't lived up to his conscience, to the dictates of his conscience. So therefore, he stands before God condemned. And then the Jew with the law of Moses has not uh, lived up to what the law said so neither the conscience or the law of Moses prevented or saved us from sin so we must have something else in order to save us from sin if the law didn't save us from sin and our conscience can't save us from sin then we must have somebody to come and save us from sin so he says that the law he declares that there are none righteous there's not one person that has lived up to the standard that God requires it, uh, for him to be saved. <coughs> and then verse 11, he says, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Left to ourselves, without God's grace moving towards us to bring us to salvation. If we were left to our save, to ourself, without the grace of God, drawing us to him we would not seek God so we have an, an act of grace of God when he begins to draw us to him without that drawing we would have never come to God the scripture said nobody has sought God left to themselves and then verse 12 they are all gone out of the way they are together become unprofitable there is none that doeth good no not one he's talking about total goodness here there's not one person that has done absolute, total goodness. We've missed the mark. One scripture says there's uh, only God is good. The rest of humanity has not done total goodness. So therefore, we've come short of God's requirements. 
in the law or in the conscience. In verse 13, he says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is, this is a society, whether you be Jew or Gentile, uh, left to yourself, apart from God. You are described here as, a throat, as an open sepulcher. You're, you're like a tongue of, of, an, of a poison serpent. Uh, it's full of cursing. It's full of bitterness. Your actions, not only what you speak, but your actions. The, the Bible says you're swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So their, their words, their actions, their thoughts are all corrupt before God. Left to themselves. This is the description of the human race, the whole world. What we see here then is the wrath of God is on all people. It is a picture of darkness. It is a picture of despair. It is a picture of people condemned by the law of God. His word is true, but people have been disobedient to his word. The whole world stands condemned in despair and in darkness and deep, deep, deep in the wrath of God. Is what we see pictured in these verses of scripture. So now we come to verse 19. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, that saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So if I trust, if I'm trusting today what I have done, then the law will shut my mouth because the law condemns me and shows me, as I've just read to you there, that I have deceit in my mouth, my sin left to myself, deceit, uh, bitterness, and cursing, and all of these things come out of my mouth. My ways are not right before God. The law shows all of these things to me. And so if I look to the law to be justified by God, I don't find salvation in the law. The law has condemned me. So what the law then does is it drives me to my Savior, Jesus Christ, instead of depending on my own goodness and my own righteousness to save me. Because I am in despair. I find that despair. I throw up my hands and and in, in, in understanding that I, I'm not what I need to be. And therefore, I go to Jesus, my Savior. And so verse 20, he says, 20, he says Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law shows me that I'm a sinner. It condemns me. The, the Bible says the wage of sin is death. So the law doesn't provide the remedy. The law only shows me the problem. It shows me the death that is in my body. And therefore, if, if the law is not a remedy, but only the the declaration and the showing forth of the problem in me, then I need to find out what the remedy is. And that's what God is going to show us. He showed us in the first chapter, the second chapter, and now in the first part of the third chapter, how the whole world is in despair and in need of a Savior. 
And it drives us to God. That's why the law came. And the law was holy and it is good. It's wonderful. It, it shows you the greatness of God. But the law condemns me. And, but in, in that, that's, that's in, a, in a way a blessing because it drives me in my despair to the remedy, Jesus Christ. And I can be, be saved by faith. And now we come to verse 21 and he says, but now. After showing us that the whole world is guilty before God. He says, God is doing something now. And it's by Jesus Christ. And it says, the righteousness of God. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is revealed. It's manifest. It's showed forth. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, God has showed us in the law and in the prophets that righteousness of God came through substitution we see in the Old Testament sacrifices in the ceremonial law in the tabernacle and in the temple we see there that God to a people who had broken his law now gives them a way that they could approach him and that way that they could approach him was by blood and yes, they had broken God's law, and they deserved condemnation, and they deserved death, and they deserved the wrath of God. His word is true. It's forever settled in the heavens. And so now he makes a way by which man could approach him once again and have that broken fellowship because he is a holy God. He is perfect. He is without sin. And in order for me to be in fellowship with him, the sin problem has to be taken care of before I can come back into the presence of the Almighty God. So now even the law and the prophets showed us that Jesus would come into this world, the seed of the woman, and he would be born. And he would crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat the devil. He would be the sacrifice for my sins so that I could walk back into the presence of a holy God who knew no sin. So God has showed us in the Old Testament prophets that he was going to provide one that could bring us back into fellowship with God. Having broken the law, whether Jew, uh, the law of God, the word of God, Ten Commandments, or whether it be a Gentile who had never seen the, the law of God and only had his conscience. And so now... We're going to find out how can we be saved and how can we come back into the family of God. And all of this, this is not something new here. This was taught in the Old Testament. It was revealed in the Old Testament. It was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so Paul is, is showing him here as he was falsely accused of in verse 8 that he, he, he was teaching, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. Basically, they were saying that, that Paul was... Uh, anti-law that he he was lawless no longer teaching the law of God but Paul said I'm not I, I'm not lawless I'm not without law the law of God he said I am establishing the law of God because the word of God even in the law made provision by by blood that man could come back to God so now we see in verse 22 even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. 
so to be righteous with God, to be in right standing with God, is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the way that we can be right with God. This is the way that we can be saved. It is through Jesus Christ. And the, and the scripture says, because everybody has sinned and has come short of the glory of God. We haven't measured up to God's righteousness, His holiness, His requirements, His word. We've, we've broken the law of God. We've sinned against God. We're, we're just in despair. and We need somebody to come down and save us. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all come short of the glory of God. People deal with sin and they deal with guilt in different ways today. This is God's way of dealing with guilt. This is God's way of dealing with sin. But people today will try to handle guilt in many different ways. They will say that the reason why they did what they did speaking about their evil actions and their evil words is that they will say that they were in bad company. That it really wasn't their fault. It really wasn't them. It was the company that they were keeping that caused them to do the evil, to do the wrong. And that type of person is a person who seeks to justify themselves by blaming somebody else, passing the buck, passing the reason on to somebody else and not dealing with it themselves. Reincarnation is a teaching that tries to handle the guilt of men by living many, many lives. And he believes that the past wrongs, the past sins that he did in a past life will be taken care of in the next life that he goes into because he will, it will affect the way that he, his next life is lived. If, if he's been an evil person and a wicked person, then his life is not going to be a good life. It's going to be a life of pain and a life of misery. So he believes that through his many, many lives and his reincarnation, that he is able to pay for his sin. Psychiatrists today, when people go to psychiatrists and they have guilt in their life, the psychiatrist will seek to, ex to deal with the guilt and the sin by explaining it away. They'll tell them, you're not really guilty, you just feel that you're guilty. And so they explain the guilt away, and they explain the sin away. Some say it was the parents' fault, that they weren't raised right. They, ra they blame their upbringing, their environment, on who they are and what they have become. And, and in, in order to handle the guilt, they, they try to blame it on the parents and the household that they were raised in. And then we have the arrogant person who tries to deal with his guilt by saying, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It doesn't hurt anyone. My, what I did, I did. It might affect me, but it doesn't hurt anybody else. So therefore, he condones his sin. He says it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And then we have the sixth person who is a charismatic person, a charismatic person, we now use that term in a way 
to describe a person who, again, basically uh, says that he's got guilt in his life, so how is he going to deal with the guilt? He takes it and he says, well, God is a God of love. <coughs> and so, therefore, he will not be judged for, for it because God simply loves us. And God, you know, God wouldn't condemn anybody into eternal damnation into a lake of fire and send them to hell because he's a God of love. And that one is, and it's true, God is a God of love. <coughs> but on the other hand, God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And therefore, his holiness and his righteousness demand that he deal with sin. So this one, this, this charismatic what I mean by charismatic, I'm talking about people who basically feel like they can live any way they want to because God is a God of love and they won't be judged. Well, see, God is a God of love and that there's just enough truth in that one to make it stick. But you have to teach the whole Word of God and understand that guilt and sin is condemned by the Word of God. And when, if you're going to be judged by the law of God, then the, the law of God does not violate the love of God. The love of God is based in truth. And so we see the different ways that people try to deal with their guilt and deal with their sin. But the Bible way to deal with guilt and to deal with sin is not to blame it on somebody else. It's not to believe in reincarnation. It's not to explain it away like the psychiatrists do. It's not blame it on the parents and your upbringing. It's not to be arrogant and say, well, it's not hurting anybody else. And, it's, and, and don't deal with guilt and say, well, God's a God of love and he's not going to judge me. The way that you deal with guilt is the Bible way. And the Bible way is putting your faith, your trust, totally commit your life to God. And the Bible says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption of <laughs> that is in Christ Jesus. The way to deal with guilt and sin and, and, and to get right with God is being justified freely, freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this. How do I deal with guilt? Then God has promised me that it's through Jesus Christ. And the first word He says is that we are justified freely. And the word justified when you talk about justified and you talk about justice, you're talking about a court of law. The scripture is telling us that we're justified as in a court of law. When it tells me that I'm justified, that means that God looks at me and he treats me as if I am innocent. I'm guilty, but I am treated as I'm innocent. I'm wrong, yes, but he treats me and you as innocent. Verse 26 tells us that to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be, be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, God is just and the justifier. How can God be just? In doing so, how can <coughs> he look at the guilty 
and say you're innocent? How could a holy, righteous God look at guilt and sin and say you're innocent of that? The, the way that he does that, and, and a holy God, a righteous God can do that is that so that our legal standing in heaven is it's changed and we're declared righteous so the bible tells me that he's the ju- he's just and the justifier of us and and how does he do that how does he how does he look at us and and declare and treat me as as if I'm innocent when I'm guilty well, the scripture tells us that he's the justifier and the just, just in doing so by cause and by he coming down off the, off the seat of judgment. He steps down to where I am and he takes my place. He gives me his innocence. He takes my guilt and my condemnation and the wrath of God on himself. He, he pays the penalty. He goes to a cross and dies in my place there. And therefore, I am declared just by God because the price is paid. And now we come, the Bible says also, it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Another picture here, moving from the court of law. It is now, since the penalty is paid and he's taken my place. But now we come to redemption, and redemption means purchased. It'd, it'd be a picture of you and me standing on an auction block, and we are, we are slaves. We are bound to the devil. We're bound to sin. We're, we're servants. And on, those, on that auction block, that slave block of sin, a slave under the wrath of God, he purchases me off of that slave block, and he brings me into his family. As one of his dear children. Then the next, the scripture tells us that in verse, it is through Jesus Christ. It's in Christ Jesus. Justification is in, in Jesus Christ. Redemption is in Jesus Christ. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So now we come to the mercy seat. We come to the, the tabernacle. We come to the temple. Where the Holy of Holies is and where the, the Ark of the Covenant is. And there the presence of God is in the Holy of Holies. Seated upon, seated upon the throne of the Almighty. The Ark. <coughs> His presence is there. And we see the picture. It says that, we, that He is our propitiation. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. And literally that word means mercy seat he has become my mercy seat that seat that was in in the holy of holies over the ark of the covenant where the law the covenant of law was and how that law had been broken and the seat was placed over it and in the high priest leviticus 16 on the day of atonement two goats were taken and one goat had the sins of the people confessed over it one of those goats were, was slain and the blood was sprinkled seven times on and before the mercy seat, the throne of God. And then the other goat was taken out to a far country, no man's land, as a scapegoat to take the sins of the people out of the camp. And so there we see the throne of God, righteous, holy God himself, <coughs> sitting on that throne. 
And whenever the blood of that goat that had been slain for the sins of the people is sprinkled before the seat and on the seat, the mercy seat, instead of a throne of judgment, it becomes a throne of mercy and grace. And that mercy seat with the blood sprinkled upon it, the blood is saying it's enough. It is enough. It is displayed in the presence of God. The blood is there displayed in the presence of God. And God looks at that blood and he said the blood is enough. God is satisfied. And he says it is enough. And if God looks at the blood and he says it is enough by blood, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus says it is enough. God says I'm satisfied. If God says I'm I must say it, amen. If God says, I'm satisfied, I must say, I'm satisfied. Because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for us. And when God sees the blood of Jesus Christ, he said, it's enough. I'm satisfied. My judgment is satisfied. And so now I don't have to take the condemnation and the wrath of God because it has been taken for me. And the price has been paid by blood. Praise God. The scripture says to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You see, the blood in the Old Testament, when they take those animals and they would kill those animals, and that blood would be shed, and that blood would be applied to the mercy seat there. That blood only covered the sins, it was the atonement. It covered the sin, and it moved it. Moved the sins up one year, and the next year they'd have to go through the same ceremony once again. And every year they would have to go through the same ceremony on the Day of Atonement. And the blood would cover the sins for another year. But they were never taken away by the blood of those animals. And so Jesus Christ comes into the world, and He's going to fulfill all those sacrificial types of the Old Testament. He's going to die. His blood will be shed. But it will be shed once and for all. He will never have to do it again, not year by year. But once and for all, it will say forever and ever, it is enough. It says, for the remission of sins that are even past through the forbearance of God, those sins of the Old Testament that were rolled ahead year by year by year. The blood of Jesus Christ goes all the way back to those sins of those Old Testament saints and removes those sins and takes them away. Not only are they covered now, but they're removed, taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hallelujah. So the sins even before the cross had to be paid for. Those that were only covered had to be totally taken away. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Verse 27 says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. It's by faith now. It's not by law that we're made right with God. It's not by works that we're made right with God. It's by faith, putting our total trust in what Jesus Christ has done. It's no longer in what I have done, but it is in what Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, we conclude, he says in verse 28, that a man is justified by faith 
without the deeds of the law. Faith is based on three things. Knowledge, belief, and trust. Faith is based on knowledge of the Word of God. What God has said in His Word, it is true. You take Him at His Word. You believe Him. You believe His Word. You believe what He said. Then you trust that what He said, He will do and has done. You take Him at His Word. And that's what faith is. It's trust in God. It is without the deeds of the law. We're not trying to work to get the approval of God. But now we have got we have the approval of God. If you are trying to be saved by your own good works. But you see, when you put your faith and your trust in what somebody else has already done for you, Jesus Christ, then you don't wait to get there to find out. You are already justified in the eyes of God. You're already right with God. So you start already saved. Not trying to get there and be saved, but you are saved now. So you've already won the race. You're not trying to get to the end of the race. You've already won the race at the beginning of the race. And that's what justification by faith is. So the scripture says it's without the deeds of the law. In verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. <laughs> Seeing it is one God. There's only one God. The Bible teaches it throughout. There's only one God. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith. The Jewish people are going to be they're going to be justified by faith in God. And the uncircumcision are going to be justified by God through faith. So we see faith is what is needed on both the part of the Jews and the Gentiles. They must put their trust in what Jesus Christ has done for them. In order to be right with God. And then verse 31 he says. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Again. Once again he says. God forbid. Yea we establish the law. Do we make the law empty? No we establish it. Do we keep on sinning because God keeps justifying? No. We establish the law. And that's. What we will we'll look at in the Romans, the fourth chapter, we'll see the saving kind of faith, the, the living kind of faith. You see, dead faith is putting or trying to work yourself into heaven. Trying to be right with God, your own works. That's dead faith, dead works. But living faith, saving faith, produces. It produces works. And so we'll see what kind of faith it takes to be saved. It's much more than just mentally accepting Jesus as your Savior. It's a total commitment, a total trust. It's being born again of the water and the Spirit and walking with God and having living faith. Not just a one-time, one-moment experience, but an ongoing, continual faith in God. That is demonstrated or proved by your lifestyle. That is the true type of living faith. 
So now we come and we can rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since guilt is gone, the law drove me to Jesus. I find my Savior and I come rejoicing and praising God because I'm justified. And that's what we want to remember here today that we are right with God. We, he has justified us. He has made us his children. We are his people by what he's done. It was a free gift. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I just went to him by faith and said, God, you've already bought it for me. I trust you today in the name of Jesus Christ. I repent of my sin. I put it under that blood, Jesus, that you shed. I am willing to go down and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, my sacrifice. And have his blood applied to my life according to Acts 5.28 and Acts 2.38, Acts 10, 43-48, Acts 19, 1-7. I'm willing to obey that plan of salvation because I know I trust what you've done for me, Lord. And I, and I believe, God, that you want to give me eternal life. You want to fill me with the Holy Ghost and power. You want to give me power to live the Christian life. And God... I, right now, believe, God, that you're going to fill me with your spirit. And so we leave this place rejoicing in God because of what he's done for us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, we just praise you right now for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. We thank you, God, for the gospel. That the gospel comes and reaches into a world of wrath. A lost world in despair and darkness condemned by the law of God, condemned by the law of conscience. We thank you today, God, Jesus, that you come and God, you're doing something now. By faith, we can be right with you, Lord. We just praise you right now, Jesus, for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for the blood. God, we ask you just to move in a mighty way, God. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the victory. Thank you that I'm right with you today, God. I ask you right now, God, to cleanse me with your precious blood. God, cleanse every evil thought, every evil word, and every evil action, God. I pray that it be put in the blood of Jesus Christ right now, God. I reach in faith to the finished work of Calvary, to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your word. It is forever settled in the heaven, God. And Lord God, as we look at the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, let us see the kind of faith that Abraham had. Saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.